This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. None dare call it evil. The core issue in our current crisis is an ideal known as relativism. It holds that there is nothing that is true or false, good or evil, except within one's mind. It often masquerades as a moral position, as in the phrase, Who am I to judge? Today, the return to order moment will call evil by its right name. First, Mr. John Horvat will consider the reasons that the media refuse to call out the evil that the riots represent. He does this in his article, The Riots. Why do none dare call them evil? The problem with living in a relativist society is that it takes from us our ability to describe and analyze issues objectively. Amid the current unrest, for example, many people refuse to label actions good or evil. According to this relativistic perspective, acts are morally neutral. We are expected to watch the riots, but never ponder or assess their moral value. Ironically, we are faced with evil that cannot be called evil. The media mischaracterize the violent riots as mostly peaceful protests. The wanton destruction of property as an expression of frustration and rage, and the rioters as victims of systemic racism and their allies. Those organized riots are not to be called evil events, attempts to overthrow law and order, or insurrections to destroy America from within. We are reduced to the sad state of denying good and evil, even though the rioting tends to make that distinction for us. During the riots, things always considered evil are uniting against things always regarded as good. If good and evil do not exist, then some categories like them exist and play the same roles. The nature of these things brings them together in all but name. However, for those who want to see reality, the unrest serves to show how evil unites against what little remains of order. It unites the lawless aggressors who consciously desire to act as evil. Evil counts on the support of liberal government officials and media figures who enable it by refusing to call it what it is. The unrest also shows intention on the part of the participants. What we are seeing are not isolated acts of evil that enter the scene by accident or exception. Instead, violence becomes the manner of acting by design. Violent rioters engage not in mostly peaceful protest, but an evil revolution to transform America through shock, indecency, terror, and brutality. The relativist's blindness to evil flies in the face of the evidence. The worst thing is that the agitators want to appear evil. The more evil deniers insist upon their denial, the more the perpetrators of evil do their utmost to make the evil obvious and thus make its denial more irrational. The violent protesters make no effort to hide evil acts. Indeed, they delight in them, making no apologies to those they harm. Their shocking and offensive actions are way beyond the limit of human decency. 
Consider the alarming case of the two police officers in Los Angeles who were both shot in the head from behind by a cowardly individual who fled from the scene. As the ambulance entered the hospital, protesters tried to block the way, crying out, We hope they die! Why is it that none dare call this evil? Such acts are multiplying amid the unrest. Social media has embedded in our minds scenes of unspeakable brutality that none would think possible a short year ago. Consider a poor man pulled out of his truck and kicked so hard in the head that he lay unconscious on the pavement. Countless videos show mob violence against individuals who did little more than show up at the wrong place at the wrong time. Night after night, rioters in Portland throw rocks, fireworks, objects, and containers with urine at police who try to keep order. They deliberately aim to blind officers with lasers. They burn flags and Bibles. Arsonists are setting fire to car lots, buildings, and forests, destroying property and endangering lives. These are all undeniably evil acts. Yet government officials refuse to press charges and release the arrested criminals. None dare call it evil. The messages of the rioters also express an evil rarely seen in our nation's history. What makes it so sinister is not only what they say, but also how they say it. The protesters do not engage in normal discourse, but evil discourse. They scream and screech at police and passersby. Their speech is laced with the most obscene language as they insult others, and yet this abuse is viewed as normal by the liberal media. The rioters call down curses and death upon police officers and any opposition. Why is this not called evil? Rioters have paraded at night in residential neighborhoods with a life-size guillotine, waking up families, demanding they get out of their houses and onto the street to join their revolution. It is not enough to voice support. Liberal restaurant patrons are harassed because they refuse to raise their clenched fist in the Marxist salute. Activists are making their protests personal and confrontational by heckling and frightening those who watch from the sidelines. Everywhere, there is evil discourse aimed at striking terror in the hearts of passersby or those who watch on social media. If all these things were not enough, then the melding of radical leftist politics with Satanism should be convincing proof of cooperation with evil. Satan proudly claims for himself a universal association with evil. Again, there is no attempt to hide the political activism of witches and Satanists amid the unrest. To dispel any doubts, the witches appear in black, using satanic symbols, skulls, incantation, and ritual. Numerous books with spells and hexes instruct protesters how to invoke help from the occult. For example, Michael M. Hughes's book, Magic for the Resistance, Rituals and Spells for Change, contains an incantation for every political occasion. One provocative chapter is titled, Witch, Women's International Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell, unquote. 
The liberal establishment appears to have embraced this connection in its efforts to enlist everyone against the current administration. The website Mashable reports that witches' covens are actively engaged in hexing police, which they accuse of brutality. They also cast spells asking protection for protesters confronting the police. The hashtag WitchesForBLM teaches witches how to cast these spells and hexes. The hashtag garnered 10 million views on the TikTok app. Instagram's magic resistance promotes a similar mix of paganism and politics. Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Calores and the BLM Los Angeles chapter co-founder Melinda Abdullah released a conversation where they discuss summoning up dead spirits that energize their activism. Quote, We've become very intimate with the spirits we call on regularly, Abdullah claimed. Each of them seems to have a different presence and personality. Unquote. In a relativistic society, All these facts mean nothing. Evil cannot be called evil, even when evildoers are the first to admit that they are doing what has always been considered evil. This moral paralysis is a recipe for disaster. When a society cannot call something good or evil, it loses its ability to defend itself. No one can make a judgment or take adequate measures. Evil is unloosed upon the land. There is only one exception to the liberal refusal to define acts. Just as evil dare not be called evil, so too good cannot be called good. When police officers try to uphold order and God's law by suppressing the causes of disorder, relativists claim they cannot be called good. When people act with heroic and saintly goodness and kindness to convince others not to live in sin, but worship instead the one true God, they cannot be called good. Missionary hero Father Junipero Serra cannot be called a saint. Instead, relativists argue, these formerly good people must be called evil. They are bigots, extremists, enslavers, and systemic racists. The media and liberal establishment's wrath descends upon those who did or seek to do what has always been considered good. The current unrest makes it very clear that the fight is between good and evil. The presence of evil acts and occult activism should be enough to convince everyone that this evil must be denounced. It should also prompt us to turn to God and defend his law as the only means to return America to order. We need to restore our fundamental moral right to call things good or evil. Indeed, perhaps it would be more accurate to say that the fight is between the deniers of good and evil and those who affirm God and his holy and eternal law. Now, the return to order moment will trace the roots of the modern disruptions to its source, Marxism. Edwin Benson connects the riots to his teaching of Karl Marx in his review of Paul Kendor's book, The Devil and Karl Marx. The review is titled, The Marxist and Stalinist Roots of the Current Crisis. Quote, When we get ready to take the United States, we will not take it under the label of socialism. We will take the United States under labels we have made very lovable. We will take it under liberalism under progressivism, under democracy. But take it, we will, 
unquote. Many Americans heard this quotation from Alexander Trachtenberg, Moscow's enforcer among American communists, with fear during the 50s. By the time the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991, that fear had become derision. As the third decade of the 21st century begins, it appears prophetic. Perhaps the election of Donald Trump in 2016 delayed things, but the socialists have only accelerated their efforts during his presidency. Far-left positions at the turn of the millennium have assumed the status of quote-unquote settled law. Topics that would have been routinely scorned 20 years ago are now being treated as serious social issues. Serious discourse has dissolved into cancel culture, wokeness, and mostly peaceful protest. In this atmosphere, the devil and Karl Marx Communism's long march of death, deception, and infiltration by Paul Kengor is valuable. It examines the intersection between faith and Marxism, an intersection that many Marxists will claim does not exist. They have proudly proclaimed their atheism since Karl Marx first put pen to paper in the 1830s. Religion is the opiate of the masses may well be Marx's most famous statement. However, Atheism is a religion, and Dr. Kangor makes this fact readily apparent. Paul Kangor's name may be familiar to some readers. He is a professor at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. His work has appeared in American Spectator, the National Catholic Register, and the online Crisis Magazine. His books include A Pope and a President, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Communism, and Dupes, how America's adversaries have manipulated progressives for a century. His venture into the Marxist occult provides insight into how evil the philosophical sect is. The book's title might give the impression that it is a biography of Marx. It is actually a biography of Marxism, with a particular emphasis on its supernatural aspects. Most doctrinaire Marxists deny that there is anything mystical about Marxism. However, Marx wrote a lot about God and Satan, pledging his allegiance to the battle's dark side. One stanza of a poem by Karl Marx suffices to illustrate this connection. His The Pale Maiden includes, Thus heaven I forfeited, I know it full well. My soul, once true to God, is chosen for hell. Marx wrote the poem when he was 19, but it illustrates the path he laid out for himself. He would point his children down that path as well. Perhaps the most poignant passage in the book describes the effects of Marx on his six daughters. Quote, When their daughters hit the depths of despair, they had no God to turn to. Their mom and dad taught them that God did not exist, that religion was false, that it was opium for the masses. Instead of smoking opium, they ingested poison, unquote. This last phrase was both figuratively and literally accurate. Most of the Marx children died young. The two that survived past their father's death committed suicide. However, Karl Marx exits from the scene about a quarter of the way through this 402-page book. 
After dispensing with Marx, Dr. Kengor describes how Lenin and Stalin waged war against religion and specifically Christianity. In 1909, Lenin wrote, quote, We must know how to combat religion, and to do so, we must explain the source of faith and religion in a materialist way, unquote. Most of the book describes how communists fought this battle in Russia, Europe, and the United States. It was through a system in which Moscow issued the orders and communists worldwide followed them. The descriptions of unfortunate Christians who fell under the Kremlin's political power are harrowing, detailed, and extremely distasteful. The book also describes the battle between Catholicism and Marxism at the highest levels. The writings of Pope Pius IX, Leo XIII, Pius X, Pius XI, and Pius XII are well presented. The book also mentions the unfortunate Ostpolitik, a policy of dialogue with the communists that thrived under John XXIII and Paul VI. These topics are handled deftly, with enough detail to inform, but never becoming dreary. However, the book's best work comes toward the end, when Dr. Kengor describes how Marxism morphed from an economic philosophy to a cultural revolution, responsible for so much of the social anarchy that one sees today. The transition begins with a series of character sketches of Marxist Satanists who came into the intellectual scene in the early years of the 20th century, including Aleister Crowley, Walter Durante, Harry Hay, and the Frankfurt School. It then moves into feminism, specifically discussing Kate Millett, whose book, Sexual Politics, helped popularize the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. Dr. Kangor quotes Miss Millett's sister, who eventually reclaimed her family's Catholic faith. Quote, It was clear that they desired nothing less than the utter destruction of Western society, she said. How would they do this? They would do so via the method laid out by the cultural Marxists, by the Frankfurt School, by the spirit of Antonio Gramsci, and the long march through generations of the culture from media to education. They would invade every American institution. Everyone must be permeated with the revolution, unquote. The book deftly compares today's cultural Marxists with their more economically oriented predecessors. Quote, the call to total transformation resonates today among cultural and sexual Marxists. While very different from classical Marxists, they bear a crucial commonality with their forebearers in this ongoing objective of fundamental transformation via criticizing all that exists, especially traditional Judeo-Christian values and institutions. The original ambition of an economic class-based revolution has failed. And so instead, today's Marxists have gone cultural and sexual." Unquote. Paul Kengor does the world a service in writing The Devil and Karl Marx. He has taken piles of indecipherable prose, an inability to write well seems to be a common Marxist characteristic, and renders it into an easily understandable narrative. It is crucial to point out that only those with a well-formed and mature conscience should read this book. Parts of the book, especially those describing the sexual revolution, are quite lurid. 
This book is to be read and digested by those who need the information to do battle against Satan. The Marxist view of the world is being deliberately fed to Americans' children through the work of Howard Zinn. His A People's History of the United States is required reading in many high school classrooms. A companion piece appeared in the New York Times in 2019. The 1619 Project teaches young Americans that the United States is evil because its whole society and government is based upon slavery and racism. Edwin Benson looks at this phenomenon in his article, How the 1619 Project Promotes the Myth of an Evil America. The entire nation should be gravely concerned as the New York Times 1619 Project worms its way into America's schools, both public and private. In recognition of this risk, the National Association of Scholars recently hosted a videotaped panel discussion titled 1776 versus 1619, Two Visions for American History. The National Association of Scholars is one of the few organizations trying to support real scholarship in the academy. The NAS sharply criticized the 1619 Project. As they explain... This project presents a historical retelling of the American story, one that places slavery as the essential element on which all of American history and progress ought to be centered. 1619 makes the case for a history rooted solely in the idea that America is a racist nation founded on racist ideals and propped up by racist institutions and individuals, unquote. The two discussants were Dr. Robert Woodson and Dr. Wilfred McClay. Dr. Woodson is the founder and president of the Woodson Center, which is constructing an online competitor to 1619, 1776 Unites. Dr. McClay is a professor of history at the University of Oklahoma and the author of Land of Hope. Dr. McClay opened the discussion, quote, 1619 argues for a reframing of American history. It is a kind of thought experiment, in a way, but one that has obviously longer-range objectives, unquote. He argues that 1619 is simple-minded, in that it argues that slavery is a part of America's DNA and cannot, therefore, be expunged. Dr. Woodson elaborates on Dr. McClay's point. He describes a process that began at Columbia University during the 60s. Sociologists and political activists Richard Cloward and Francis Fox Piven were on the faculty of Columbia University. According to Dr. Woodson, they hijacked the civil rights movement by devising a stratagem to convince African Americans to enroll in the welfare programs then being promoted by President Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty. According to Dr. Woodson, quote, their theory was that if you separate work from income, it would make fathers redundant, and therefore there would be a disintegration of the nuclear family, and as a consequence, all of these pathologies would follow, unquote. One of the pathologies, he said, is to falsely attribute the problems of today to, quote, the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow, unquote. Both professors marveled at the rapidity with which many school systems adopted this product of the New York Times. 
Both discussants elaborated on the need for historical context and criticized the 1619 Project for both ignoring the accurate context of events and, on occasion, actually creating false contexts. The first manufactured context is that the 1619 Project presents slavery as uniquely American. Dr. McClay points out that slavery was a part of many, perhaps all, of the world's early civilizations. It was nearly universal throughout history and continues today. He specifically noted that a quarter of the population of Mauritania, an Islamic republic in northern Africa, is enslaved. He quipped, I wish the New York Times would show more interest in that, unquote. Another contextual error of the 1619 Project is that it ignores the successes of African Americans during the era of segregation. Dr. Woodson cites factors that the 1619 Project omits. Before 1960, most African American families were traditional nuclear families, with out-of-wedlock birth rates that were minuscule compared to today. In turn, this factor led to entrepreneurship, self-sacrifice in the interests of children, and stable communities that included doctors, lawyers, stores, schools, and especially churches. Further, leaving out that context paints African Americans as helpless victims, creating a new kind of slavery. Dr. Woodson goes further, presenting the 1619 Project as, quote, almost an expression of white supremacy, unquote. The 1619 Project was not just a trial balloon to determine the public reaction to its lies and deceits. It is the next step in a carefully crafted and deliberate propaganda campaign designed to destroy American culture. These people know the power of commonly accepted ideas. However, the academic anarchists have been working at this for a long time. They have been carefully weaving their ideas into teacher education materials and student textbooks for at least 50 years. Perhaps the best-known example is the leftist effort to promote the horribly slanted A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. Professors McClay and Woodson are working toward a more accurate view of American history. It is an admirable effort. That being said, adjusting academic perspectives is not sufficient. This is not just an academic problem. It is a moral issue as well. The 1619 Project presents students with a false and fatalistic Marxist narrative of the oppressors and the oppressed. White people are the oppressors. They are born into that role and cannot escape it. Even the most scrupulous control of thoughts and actions is not enough. All of the other groups are the oppressed. No matter how hard they try, they will always be oppressed. The only escape is a revolution to overthrow the system. The leftist worldview leaves no place for God, virtue, or free will. Like everywhere else on the leftist spectrum, there is no tolerance for moral law, natural law, or any other set of beliefs that do not conform to their determinist creed. When Howard Zinn's book debuted in 1980, most traditionalists ignored it. The book went on to become extremely influential because leftists promoted it. 
God-fearing Americans cannot afford to make the same mistake with the 1619 Project. This concludes None Dare Call It Evil. Thank you so much for listening. To read these or find related articles, please visit our websites at www.tfp.org and www.returntoorder.org. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. In that way, you can help Return to Order be more effective. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2020 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.